Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care is a program of the Avoiding Drugs as Chemical Restraints Consumer Education Campaign, a partnership with the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and AARP Foundation. In this discussion with Bev Lauber, the Ohio State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, and Patty Ducaye, the Texas State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, we'll discuss residents' rights, the role of the Ombudsman program, and how residents can advocate for their rights in their facility. Hi, I am Katie Kohler with the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. Today, we are going to be talking about residents' rights and the Ombudsman program. So a person living in a long-term care facility maintains the same rights as an individual in the larger community. Ombudsman programs help residents and family members understand their rights and support them in exercising their rights that are guaranteed by the federal law. So today we are talking with Bev Laubert, the Ohio State Long-Term Care Ombudsman, and Patty Ducaye, the Texas State Ombudsman. And we are going to discuss the role of the Ombudsman program and how residents can advocate for their rights. So hi, Patty and Bev. Hello. Hello. So could you both introduce yourself and describe what the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program does? Sure. So I'm Beth. Um, I'm the State Ombudsman in Ohio and really excited to be here, I should say. I've been uh, listening to these podcasts for uh, since they started and um, I, I think they're great. I'm, I'm so glad Consumer Voice is doing this for families and, and consumers. So, so the Office of the State Ombudsman is um, from federal law, from the Federal Older Americans Act. And the program has evolved over many years, um, but basically we are independent advocates for long-term care consumers. Under the federal law, we are uh, focused on long-term care facilities and some states like my own in Ohio uh, also assist uh, consumers of home and community-based services when they have problems. So basically it's resolution of problems. And hello, this is Patty from Texas. Good to be with you all too. And and so happy to be partnering with Bev, Bev on this. I will add that from, I'm the Texas State Long-Term Care Ombudsman and uh, just wanna emphasize that independence and how critical that is to our our effective work, resolving problems at the individual level for residents and then looking at that systems level as well, whether that's legislative changes at the federal or state level that benefit residents or policy changes at state agencies that really affect the quality of care for our our clients, residents in long-term care nursing facilities and assisted living facilities in Texas. Great, thanks. So could you talk a little bit more about what settings you cover and who you represent? Sure, so um, nursing homes, uh, I think are where we're best known. Um, but assisted living also, and you know, nursing homes have a federal structure and regulatory structure that assisted living does not have. There's not really federal um, oversight of assisted living. So that one is a little tougher for some of us because our state laws vary. Uh, and then also um, what the federal law calls board and care facilities and every state calls those different things too, adult care facilities, personal care homes, um, Ohio has an odd name called residential facility class two uh, for that are smaller homes. Um, 
sometimes we use shorthand and call them group homes, um, similar kinds of, of um, settings. And then of course, in some areas, home and community-based services as well, like adult day and home delivered meals, nursing. And this is Patty, just to, to add on to that, Texas is very squarely in the set of nursing facility work and then our assisted living definition of assisted living facilities. And of course, as, as Bev said, that is very state specific in terms of how those are defined in our state. And I, I really do want to jump on what Bev said about the difference with assisted living. It makes it hard because we can all join together as a nation on our nursing facility issues. With assisted living, it is so much more of a challenge. And we have such a range of protections from really bad, very little, to some pretty good protections, but they're very state specific. And that's that's a big challenge for us. And a real area, I think, for, for federal advocacy by the long-term care ombudsman programs is, is to protect those needs of people in kind of that assisted living board and care setting. One of the first things I remember when Patty became state ombudsman was um, some great advocacy that you did about assisted living, really pointing out some of the issues that you were seeing in Texas. So I'll always, I'll, I always remember that great advocacy on your part. Thank you. We have a we have a special assisted living ombudsman who kind of serves like a state ombudsman for our assisted living work and having that level of expertise at, in Texas, I think has really upped our 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 game there, uh, put us on the stage in our state. Several years ago, there was an effort to um, get more federal engagement and create a federal definition of assisted living, but I think there were just so many diverse views on that that it just didn't really come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So what type of complaints um, does an ombudsman investigate and does it vary in assisted living and nursing homes or are they similar? Um, in our state, they're pretty similar. Um, there are some variations. So uh, like in our top five nursing home complaints, uh, medication administration is not always there, um, but in assisted living it is. Um, and then also billing issues tend to be more common in assisted living because you know, they're, they might say they have varying levels of care uh, in assisted living. And so someone, you know, enters assisted living, they pay one rate, and then maybe their needs increase, maybe they need medication administration or uh, incontinence assistance, that sort of thing. So then they like bump them up to another tier of, uh, of a bill. And then we get calls and say, I don't understand why my bill is so much more. I really don't think my mother's getting that much more care. So that's one of the things that we've noticed that's unique for assisted living. Uh, and Katie, this is Patty again. I would, I need to echo that those, those two complaints that Bev mentioned about assisted living, I would say are right there on the higher level of our assisted living complaints, medications and billing issues. And really that billing issue for us is also because in our state, mostly we're talking about a private pay level of care and assisted living. We don't really have much Medicaid available to people living in that setting, that level of care. And that just, that causes some real problems because there isn't the kind of regulation oversight and protections for people for what they have to be, what they can be charged when it's all private pay. Uh, on the nursing home side, really the obvious uh, key 
key complaint to talk about that I know Bev will agree with me on is discharges. Um, We see this, this has been the number one complaint for many, many years nationally in our nursing facilities. It has not been the very top complaint in the state of Texas, but it has been on the rise. And so this continues to be just devastating in terms of the experience by residents being kicked out against their wishes and the work that is necessary by the ombudsman to fight those discharges, the the investigation, the the level of time and effort that goes into those complaints is is really substantial. It is, and you know, we've had variation in regulatory enforcement with discharge. Um, In my federal region um, that's based in Chicago, we've had some good success with um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services really taking it seriously. And I remember um, on one particular call between state ombudsman and CMS in our region that um, the guy in charge said um, that we should all imagine um, being evicted from our home and how that would make us feel, you know, depending on the reason, embarrassment, Uh, maybe some feelings of shame, fear, uh, whatever the reason is. And um, think about how traumatic that is. And and he really encouraged survey agencies to um, cite discharge issues at at the level of actual harm um, because of that emotional distress that it causes. So it's so upsetting and and our, Hearing um, procedures differ around the country as well. And, um, you know, in some states, um, the ombudsman do an outstanding job of representing residents in those hearings uh, or even trying to resolve the problems before um, we have to get to a hearing. And in some cases, some states, they really rely a lot on uh, legal service attorneys and their partnerships with legal services. So we try our best to advocate for those. Interestingly, for a period of time um, this year in uh, 2020, uh, during the pandemic, uh, visitation um, finally eclipsed our discharge um, complaints as far as being the most frequent, just for a short period of time. And Katie, I'll just add one more thing on to what Bev said about discharge fair hearings, is, is just to say how meaningful it is that The long-term care ombudsman has this responsibility to represent the interests of residents before governmental entities. And this is a governmental entity or function. And the fact that we have that authority is really sets us apart as an advocacy service. It is time consuming. It takes expertise and practice, but helping somebody stay in their home is very satisfying as well. And in Texas, I will say we have had a lot of success with our fair hearings when we represent someone. So that's interesting that you bring that up. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about your authority and Mm -hmm. what the ombudsman program can and can't do. Um, Like, can you impose fines or force a facility to take a certain action? I can take that, Bev. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, So I will answer that we cannot impose any kind of fines. Uh, We don't have any kind of enforcement action. And I would say generally that is true of all long-term care ombudsman programs. There are a couple of things that 
exist out there in specific states. So our work is really about communication, uh, about persuasion, about knowing the regs, the regulations, the rules, and applying those because knowledge is power. It's why we have such a big education component of the Ombudsman program. But the fact that we know this stuff means that we can call people on their bluffs when they, <laughs> they claim something is a requirement that isn't. Right, right. Yeah, and um, like in my state, for example, we do have a fine for willful interference with the ombudsman. If someone, um, you know, either we had one situation where we've actually issued a fine where um, a long-term care facility administrator um, locked the door so an ombudsman could not get into the building uh, to try to negotiate a problem, a resolution to a problem. So uh, we were able to find that facility. It was $500, but it was enough to say for them to say, we won't ever do that again. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there are, uh, we really rely on the regulatory agencies to uh, enforce the requirements for access for ombudsmen to residents and all of the rights that residents have really. Thank you. Um, so if a family member has a concern and they bring it to the ombudsman program, what happens next? Well, we, we have a few processes like uh, intake. So um, that's a really important part of an ombudsman. Most of our calls, I, most of our complaints, I think come by the, over the phone. Um, sometimes we get emails or letters, but uh, mostly by phone, I think. Um, and uh, so it's really important for the ombudsman to just listen to what the person has to say. And then at some point kind of take control of the conversation. And then we ask specific questions that we need to know in order to begin an investigation. Consent is critically important um, that everybody understands um, that they have the right to say yes or no, that they don't, you know, they whether they want us to reveal their identity in handling the complaint. And we do a lot of action planning um, in concert with the complainant and the consumer, uh, just to, so everybody's on board about what steps we're taking. And, you know, a resident might say, oh, please don't talk to that particular nurse. I don't really get along with her. How about talking to this nurse instead? Uh, so it's really important for us to follow that direction of the consumer because, I mean, we're modeling good behavior, right? Because we want providers to follow the direction of their residents. And um, so we investigate, look at a lot of different facts and um, look at records when we need to uh, interview lots of people. And then, I don't know, Patty, you wanna take it from there? Sure, so uh, what I would add to that is that you mentioned your question was about a family member coming to us. And so Bev said it, consent is essential. We get consent from the person who calls us for us to work openly on this, on this complaint. But we also tell anyone who contacts us that isn't the resident that we will, we will go to the resident. And that even includes determining that a resident cannot consent to us, which a lot of times that's the perception that a caller an inquirer gives us, but um, we we also we we want to hear from the resident, even if their their memory is impaired, even uh, even when their capacity may be affected by a 
a diagnosis of dementia or, or other kinds of diagnoses, we always are required to include the resident in, in the work we do. And, and to the degree that a resident can participate, we are gonna make sure that they do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's, I like that you say that because it's all about the resident and what they want. So that goes back to the resident rights. It's the resident's rights, not the family member's rights. So um, could you talk about the resident's rights and how the Ombudsman program advocates for residents' rights? Sure. Um, So there are several enumerated rights in the federal regulations, and then some of our states have um, also a Bill of Rights for licensing purposes. Uh, But things like the right to be involved in making decisions about care, uh, the right to uh, be treated with dignity and respect, the right to voice grievances, Uh, the right to not be discharged except for uh, certain allowable reasons, Um, right to information. You know, that's one of the things we've really been dealing with a lot during the pandemic is just getting information about what's happening um, with COVID in the building, with um, other residents, you know, staffing levels, family members wanting information because they can't get in in many cases to see what's happening. So uh, information has been a real focus um, for us during the pandemic. And I'll add one that we mentioned earlier, the right to see visitors, the right to make choices and being fully informed about your health care. These all just seem to really overlap. our rights for our long-term care residents are, are, are sort of this combination of civil rights and healthcare rights that warrant extra protection because of the institutional setting that they live in and the, the unfortunate likelihood that rights can be infringed upon unnecessarily by that setting. You know, one of the things I especially liked in the 2016 federal regulation is about care planning and um, the ability of the resident to choose who participates in care plan meetings. Uh, and, and the addition of a requirement that the direct care staff like the CNA um, who knows the resident best have the opportunity to participate in care planning. And that's one of the challenges that we've seen um, where Facilities will maybe get information from the CNA who works with that resident, but the CNA isn't always in the meeting uh, because they don't, the facility doesn't want to take them off the floor um, in providing care, but it's really important for them to be there and to be engaged. It's also really good for the CNA because they should be respected way more than they are. Uh, for the information that they have and their knowledge and familiarity with the resident. So having them be part of that process um, is good for them. It's good for staffing in general and really good for the resident. So um, you mentioned the pandemic and how your job has changed a little bit over this time or, or has it not changed? Can you talk about how you're still advocating and how Um, ombudsman representatives are still advocating and still doing their job despite the lack of information being shared sometimes? 
Yeah, so um, a lot of virtual advocacy um, by phone, by um, video, uh, seeing residents, uh, making observations in facilities. Again, some variation, and we really rely on the facility to be cooperative uh, with that process. And so that's really important right for residents to be able to see their ombudsman and, and uh, provide information to them so we can try to help them with any challenges that they're having. Um, and in accessing records, um, we're supported by a federal determination that ombudsmen are health oversight agencies for purposes of HIPAA. So we should be able to call a facility and say, we want your census list and we want your list of family members. So then we can make phone calls to people. Um, we've done lots of trying to do lots of outreach. Um, we sent a postcard to every resident of a long-term care facility uh, in Ohio just to say, don't forget your ombudsman is still here. We're not visiting. We're not seeing you. Uh, we miss you, but um, here's how you can reach us if you need us. And I know Patty has been doing a lot of outreach as well, like on Facebook Live and, and doing some great things. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I'm, that's, that's a great idea to, to mention. I will say, of course, our mission hasn't changed a bit. Uh, the, the importance of our, our functions probably are actually have been highlighted by COVID-19. The complaints might have shifted towards certain examples that we provided you guys earlier today. But uh, yes, I, I think the things that have really stuck out to me are uh, doing some things that to me were a little bit scary, but have been very fruitful. And, and that is after being asked by a family member to get there, get on Facebook Live and having seen the Connecticut State Ombudsman, Mairead Painter, doing that, I said, okay, I'm just going to try it next week. And we started, and then I just kind of immediately committed to a weekly quick check-in really geared toward family members where we take live questions and answers and try to push out information that they that is most meaningful to family members of long-term care residents. And so for months, that has been visitation. What are their rights? What are their opportunities to reconnect? What are the expectations and what are the requirements of our facilities about visitation and, and the residents' rights to see their family and other friends? That has been very meaningful. The other thing that I would say that's changed in my experience under COVID is family engagement. Um, and it's not just because of this Facebook Live event that we're hosting, but just uh, this, this, this surging of energy and really anger and fear uh, out about COVID-19 and the lack of information that's been provided to family members. There's not enough energy in this world being put forth to helping residents and family members understand what's going on. There is more energy to the direction of our long-term care providers of care. And, and I, they're important, but we've done, we've really tried to fill in that gap. And I think ombudsman programs around the country are really looking for ways to make ourselves available, accessible to residents and family members through these new ways, whether it's old fashioned letter writing, emailing and phone calls, or producing something low tech enough, but live and available for people to watch that help them stay informed. Right. Systems advocacy has been pretty focused as well. I think, um, you know, uh, legislators asking for our input on um, 
you know, administrative orders and visitation guidelines, uh, essential caregiver issues, uh, compassionate care. So that's been pretty focused um, from a legislative standpoint, but also other types of systems advocacy that aren't necessarily legislative, but, um, you know, talking with the health department, public health, uh, engaging with them more and, and being part of emergency response. Uh, so really connecting with the emergency uh, uh, management agency, having them understand our role, having them check in with us if they have a, a problem with a long-term care facility or they get calls or uh, supplies of personal protective equipment, uh, testing supplies. Um, so we've had the opportunity to be part of many of those discussions to try to influence public policy for the betterment of residents, you know, making sure that as much as possible, we have flexibility in visitation policies and uh, that those orders that are coming out in so many states or have come out in so many states are uh, as resident friendly as they can be. So can a resident do something like systems advocates advocacy at their level? How can they, how can they achieve the bigger picture? Yeah, Bevel, I'll start by giving one example. Because residents and family members have seemed more engaged to me on that systems level, this has created opportunities where when I get calls from newspapers and the radio and, and researchers who want to put out reports that expose the experience of residents, I've got a list of names to pull from these days, a mm -hmm. list of residents who are willing and able to talk to that reporter or researcher and same for family members. And that has been remarkable to me. That usually has been difficult for an ombudsman, uh, including the state ombudsman, to find people who are willing to talk openly about these issues. So that's, that's a pretty exciting difference as well. And yeah. yes, um, we are, we're gonna take those opportunities when we can uh, share those chances and, and then encourage things like calling your, your elected officials and writing to your elected officials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great ideas. That's great. Um, do you have anything in Ohio or that you see yeah, residents doing? What Patty, what Patty talked about is great. We've had family members um, do, again, um, more engaged in advocacy on a, in an organized way. And um, yeah, residents uh, speaking up. Uh, we had one resident, I had nothing to do with this, of course, um, but uh, there was a resident featured in um, a national uh, publication recently uh, talking about his experience uh, in his nursing home, and they were, he was from Ohio, so got lots of attention uh, in state government in Ohio, and uh, spent a lot of time talking with him on the phone then, and, and he has really informed uh, our response to some of the problems that, that he highlighted for other residents even. And you know, uh, the last thing I'll add, Katie, is that one thing that's pretty remarkable is how in, engaged and informed that has made our elected officials, yeah. especially for my state legislature. Uh, they have heard from family members in particular, and some of them have had their own experiences with a, a family member in long-term care facility. And so they've experienced this restriction on their visitation. 
And that has really taken their interest to a next level. You know, when something affects you personally, then we can really see attention turn to a real world kind of attention, a turn to a, a, a problem. And I've got some real op optimistic feelings about the upcoming legislative session for us in our state. And this has been a, a good connection and the Ombudsman program has been well exposed as well. Because, I mean, if you really think about it, let's face it, um, long-term care providers have an easier time of reaching out to their legislator, uh, you know, about um, Medicaid reimbursement and regulations and so on. And so legislators know them as their constituents, you know, their businesses and in their districts. But now I think they're getting to know the residents as their constituents too. And I think that's really exciting um, between the legislative attention and more media attention. You know, all of the news um, that we've seen um, during the pandemic hasn't all been bad, but there, and, and it hasn't all been good either, uh, but nursing homes are much more highlighted in the media now, national media, local media, and I think that that's great. And so when I testified um, on what we're experiencing um, to our General Assembly, that's one of the things that I said, I hope that um, the, the nursing home and assisted living residents continue to get the kind of attention that they have during the pandemic. And that we're all learning from this experience that how important they are and um, that we're not just forgetting about them. Yeah, I think people always say it takes something terrible to highlight these things that have always been happening, but now everyone's just paying attention. So it's good and bad. Um, so the last question I just wanted to end on was if a resident feels like their rights are being violated, and what do they do? Where do they go? And how do you help? You know, anytime someone feels like something isn't quite right, we want them to speak up to call us um, so we can educate them about their rights, give them a little information to bolster them if they wanna handle it on their own or ask us for help. You know, we, and, and sometimes it's a combination, you know, we might give them a little information, they try to do something and, you know, to get something changed. Um, maybe they'll go to resident council and raise an issue with resident council and then we'll follow up and say, hey, how did that go? Or we can send a volunteer ombudsman to your resident council meeting and talk with all of the residents about these issues. And by the way, you have a right to have minutes taken at that council meeting and for the facility to give you a written response to the concerns that you have. So giving them that information sometimes just sort of emboldens them. Uh, we've been trying to have some uh, conference calls with resident council presidents uh, around the state to have them compare notes about what their experiences are in their facilities. And again, that's just an opportunity for us to empower them. But speaking up, um, I think is probably the, the biggest message. Patty, what do you, what do, you do? I, I could not say that better. So I, I don't know that I could dare to, to add to it because I, I like that Bev has turned to knowing your rights and then just trusting that if something doesn't feel right, trusting that in your gut to speak up, speak directly to the facility or come to us and let the ombudsman be there for you and help support you through 
expressing your needs and getting those needs met. That's, that's all we can do. And don't settle, you know, so many people, you know, let's use food complaints um, as an example. You know, people, you hear people say, well, they're cooking for a hundred people. It can't be good. Well, why can't it? You know, don't, don't settle, uh, which actually ended up being um, the kind of the tagline on our, um, our mission statement. And I was about to go there with you. Advocate for excellence um, and expect excellence in your care. Don't just accept the minimum, but really expect the facility to, to do what you need them to do and be person directed. And I'm so thankful for Bev's mantra there and her, her concept for Ohio, because as an ombudsman, I have to be reminded not to settle. I, you know, there are so many times that we do hear the same complaint over and over again. And, and I can get complacent with that as well. And I need my colleagues to, you know, push back on me on that. And we need to constantly strive for better. That's great. Thank you. And I just love what you guys have to say. And you're such leaders in your state and around the nation. So Thank you both for joining us. Um, and if anyone is looking for an ombudsman in their state, you can go to theconsumervoice.org slash get underscore help. So thank you, Patty and Bev, for talking about this core important topic with us. Thanks, Thanks Katie. We're, we're so glad to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information about the campaign. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.